everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. I hope you enjoyed the gram-negative resistance episodes. I was really excited for us to talk about that topic. We are back with another high-yield ID clinical scenario, which is cardiac device infections. Our co-host today is Dr. Noah Rosenberg, who is starting his third year as an internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, or BIDMC, in Boston, Massachusetts. We are then joined by two discussants. First, we are delighted to have some cardiology representation for today with Dr. Nicholas or Nick Palmieri. Nick completed his internal medicine residency at Columbia, followed by cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology or EP fellowship at BIDMC. And then from an ID perspective, we have my wonderful friend and the discussant from our actually very first episode of Febrile, Dr. Wendy Stead. Wendy is the program director of the BIDMC ID Fellowship Program, where she also completed her internal medicine residency and ID fellowship. As everyone's favorite cultured podcast on Febrile, we like to hear a little bit about uh, a little piece of culture or something that brings you joy or happiness um, and preferably non-medical. So maybe I'll start with you, Noah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sarah. I was at a Starberry Festival this weekend and Starberry festivals in in June in Massachusetts are amazing. Uh, we got to like pick our own strawberries and brought our dog, and it was honestly oh. the best time. But also, then she got ticks all over. So there was also <laughs> that. <laughs> oh, that sounds lovely. <laughs> um, what about you, Dick? Um, we uh, uh, went down to Rhode Island to go visit uh, my in-laws. And we have a pug dog, but we have a swimming pug dog who even goes out into the ocean himself. So he was enjoying himself in the water this weekend so, on that dog and New England theme. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Wendy? Um, I have been listening to a new podcast um, called Slow Burn. I don't know if you guys have heard it at all, but they do like these. They basically do episodes looking at prior American political scandals. And so they started with one about the Nixon era, um, which is so fascinating. Yeah, so much stuff I had no idea about, but that sounds eerily familiar in some ways. (laughs) So yeah, I totally recommend it. It's been really awesome. Yeah, they probably have endless amounts of content to select from. There you go. All right. Well, Noah, you are in charge. Can you tell us about the case? Yeah. So our case today is a 60-year-old woman. She is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, type 2 diabetes, and CKD. And she had a VFib arrest recently due to coronary artery disease, had a cabbage, a mitral valve repair, and then an ICD implanted three months prior to this admission and was in rehab. But she was sent back from rehab with perlins draining from her ICD site blood uh, and wound cultures are sent, and she's admitted for further workup. So for today's consult question, I'm calling because I'm worried about a cardiovascular implantable electronic device infection. and was wondering sort of how we understand cardiac devices and how we should approach this case. Sure, yeah. So um, cardiac implantable electronic devices um, are becoming more and more commonly used um, in treatment of cardiovascular disease. Um, they include pacemakers um, and uh, defibrillators, implantable cardiac defibrillators or ICDs, and then uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy devices, which could either be pacemakers or defibrillators that have a third wire um, that that goes uh, through the coronary sinus to pace the left ventricle. 
Um, most of the devices that are being implanted even today are um, transvenous, and they have a component of uh, a, a wire that uh, travels through the, the venous system, typically um, through the subclavian system on, on the left side, uh, in most cases, although on the right side as well. Um, there are other cardiac implantable devices um, like the leadless pacemaker and the subcutaneous uh, defibrillator that are also used uh, uh, for management of, of, of patients with uh, dysrhythmias of various kinds. Uh, so in a patient like this, I was wondering sort of from the infectious disease perspective, how we think about these infections involving cardiac devices, um, especially what we should think about for empiric therapy um, and what bugs come to mind when we're trying to manage this patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so I start thinking about anatomically the different parts of the device. So I start thinking about the different parts of the device when I'm thinking about infection, and that helps me know kind of where to look for symptoms and signs of infection. And so I think along the lines of, I know that there is a pocket where there is a generator to the device. And so I'm thinking about looking at the pocket and making sure there's no wound breakdown and pressing around in the pocket a little bit, making sure it's not red, inflamed, tender. And then I'm thinking about the wires that sort of go from the generator into the device itself, which can go in a whole bunch of different areas, right? So depending on what type of device it is, and Nick can obviously tell us a lot more about this, but there are often leads that will go into the right atrium and the right ventricle. And so I'm thinking about if there's infection over there, then that's going to involve the right side of the heart. And so I'm thinking about could the tricuspid valve be involved? What are the structures on the right side of the heart that can be involved? The leads themselves can get involved as they go, as they sort of traverse down through the SVC and into the right atrium. And so you can find vegetations in strange places. And then if it's cardiac resynchronization therapy, often there's another lead that goes through the coronary sinus as well and goes to the left side of the heart. And so I'm thinking of all those different areas. And as I'm thinking about involvement, if I'm thinking that the leads might be involved or the valves might be involved in the heart, then I want to obviously try to look or think about what you might see in a case like that. So I'd be looking at blood cultures to tell me if somebody's got a bacteremia that might lead us down that track. Um, Certain bacteremias would be more likely to potentially involve a device than other bacteremias. Not all bacteremias are created equal in terms of the likelihood that they'll involve the device if you have a patient who's bacteremic and has a cardiac device in place. So I'm thinking about that. And then I'm also thinking about, do I need to image the valves and or the lead in the heart? And usually the most common way that we start to try to do that is by echo. Um, And I don't know if we're going to get into talking about different types of echo for making diagnosis in this setting. But generally, as with native valve endocarditis, transesophageal echoes would be much more sensitive to look for endocarditis related to device infections, both vegetations on the valves and or the leads. Um, than a transthoracic echo would be, although we often get that as well, um, potentially for other reasons. Um, So that's kind of how I start to think about, could it be infected and look to see, um, is it infected? Maybe maybe we can start off with sort of the the microbiology, um, wondering like which bugs would be most common and in terms of empiric therapy, what we target initially. Yeah, yeah. So generally, most commonly the microbiology involved in cardiac device infections is uh, the bugs that live on our skin. Um, And, you know, it's a high risk time, uh, like with this patient, when you've just had your device placed, or when you've just had a generator or battery change, you've just had some recent procedure done on your device, that's a very high risk time for getting an infection. And so the bugs in that setting are the bugs that you would expect them to be. And so it's really sort of coag negative staph fights with staph aureus to sort of lead the list of most common causes of cardiac device infections. 
Um, after that, certainly there are other gram positives that can get involved. So things like enterococcus, different types of strep, groupie strep can get involved. Um, very rarely gram negative organisms. It's actually quite uncommon, like it is with native valve endocarditis, to have a gram negative infection of a cardiac device, um, although occasionally it happens. Um, and then sometimes fungal infections like candida, um, although that too is fairly rare. So it's generally the staph aureus and the cardiac negative staph are most common. Yeah, I'd piggyback on the uh, the point that you made, Wendy, that a lot of times the infection uh, uh, follows, uh, if especially if you're talking about something that's localized to the pocket of the device, um, follows some sort of instrumentation of the device, whether it be a fresh implant or whether it be after a generator change, or sometimes we do lead upgrades, you know, for if somebody needs atrial pacing or if they need cardiac resynchronization therapy, we'll add on another lead. And uh, anytime that you... Um, disturb the the pocket and and open it up um there's a there's a risk of infection um but i do feel like and and uh you guys can tell me about your experience uh, but I, I do feel like we're thinking about device infection commonly in the setting of uh, an existing device and we're talking about bacteremia uh, with a high-risk organism while there's already a uh, you know an extant device uh, in, in situ yeah, Nick, I would actually say that's probably the most common setting, right, that we encounter it. I mean, we exactly. cer certainly see occasionally when the device has just gone in, maybe you'll get a call because at the wound site where it's healing, there seems like maybe there's a superficial infection. Sometimes we get called because the um, generator is eroding through the chest. That's, a, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. a consult we see sometimes for sure with sort of a more chronic mm -hmm. infection. But I would say... I don't know what the percentage is. We should probably look, but it feels like at least 80 to 85% of the time you're getting called because someone already has a device in and they have bacteremia. And that's actually- Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah. that's, in my opinion, why it's really important to know the literature, scant as it may be, yeah. um, that we have that looks at what is the likelihood when you have somebody with a device who comes in with bacteremia, what is the likelihood that the device is going to be involved with that bacteremia? And that varies pretty significantly. So we know with Staph aureus from some small observational work that's been done a long time ago um, at Duke and some since that probably if someone has a device and they come in with Staph aureus bacteremia, it's probably involved about 35 to 40% of the time, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, there are also some observational papers uh, looking at coagnate, so non-Staph aureus, Staph and other gram positives showing that in that situation, coag negative staph bacteremia. And this is not just one positive coag negative staph bottle. It's, you know, um, persistent bacteremia coag negative staph, probably involved about 30% of the time. And then afterwards, it starts to drop down after that. So once you start getting into the other strep, it's probably closer to maybe 20% of the time. And then there's one small paper looking at gram negatives that suggests it's like 6% of the time. They recommend not really even going down the road of looking for cardiac device involvement, um, unless you have a high reason to suspect it in somebody with like an E. coli bacteremia or Klebsiella bacteremia, and they have a urinary tract infection or some other clear source. We're not going searching for device-related infection in those patients if they have a device, unless there's some other reason like persistent bacteremia, um, you know, they're throwing emboli, some other thing that would make us go down that road. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the gram-negative bacteremia is when someone has a device or, or challenging because we don't have a ton of data. And there, there are certain gram-negatives like serratia that make me more nervous than others, but it's hard to quantify that and, and know exactly when to push for those patients to get worked up for a device infection versus 
saying this is a bacteremia and the devices involved. Yeah. yeah. You're right, Sarah. There's what there's a paper out there um, that we looked at a few years back too, suggesting that if it's serratia or pseudomonas, um, yeah. you're more likely to have device involvement uh, as well. But those patients, when you look carefully at that group of patients, they had a lot of other um, devices. They had a lot of prosthetic valves. They had LVADs, mm-hmm. um, and so they had other things that were probably setting them up for those bacteremias as well. Yeah, um, I was just wondering. We, we sort of talked about high risk organisms, but in terms of types of devices, are there certain devices that you think are higher risk than others, whether it's like sort of biventricular devices or like where the lead's placed or how the how the implant actually occurred? Yeah, no, that's that's correct. I, I think there is some uh, evidence that cardiac resynchronization therapy devices, the ones that have um, the more complicated devices that have more hardware, are at an increased risk for infection. Um Probably some of it is procedure related, but probably some of it has to do with just more surface area um, in the blood pool. You know, and when you're doing the cardiac resynchronization therapy devices, uh, I remember someone telling me, you know, when you're doing these cases, there's wires flipping around and such. But, <laughs> you know, we, we're pretty meticulous about our sterile technique and making sure that, that um, uh, we avoid those primary uh, infections. So I think a lot of it is secondary, you know, sort of... Um, bacteremia in the setting of a, a cardiac implantable device that that we see more infection of, of CRTs. And I think one other point, uh, Noah, is the, the newer devices like the leadless pacemaker, the, the leadless pacemaker is, um, you know, about the, the length of a USB drive and, and cylindrical and, and about that same size um, and is contained entirely in the right ventricle. And there's a lot of excitement in the electrophysiology world about leadless pacemakers uh, because the hope is that there will be a reduced risk of, of device infection. You know, there's probably certain um, aspects of the way that the, the device is, is implanted, um, which is minimally invasive uh, from the groin. And the entire device is contained within the right ventricle. And so you don't have a subcutaneous uh, uh, component. And there's probably factors like the turbulent blood flow in the right ventricle, you know, although the pressure is, is lower and, and the flow is different than it is, say, on the left. It's, it's certainly different than um, the vein. Um, and so there's probably a lower risk of infection, although data supporting that notion are, are really lacking. Um, but, but there probably is a lower risk of infection. And then the, the subcutaneous, uh, uh, implantable cardiac defibrillator, the, the, the SICD as we call it, um, is specifically designed to avoid some of those intravascular lead related complications. So it's, it has a, lead that goes under the skin in front of the sternum and sort of the, the lateral aspect of the, um, of the ribs. And then it has another component that goes sort of in the axilla and, uh, it can deliver, a, a, a shock for, for ventricular tachyrhythmias. Um, it can't pace. So it has disadvantages relative to traditional transvenous systems, um, for patients who need a defibrillator. But, uh, you know, the idea, the, the idea is out there that there might be alternative, um, uh, uh, device strategies for patients who are at high risk for infection or those who have had a previous infection. Nick, I feel like the idea has been out there for a long time. And I sort of, when I first heard the idea, I expected it to kind of take off more than it has. Are there drawbacks to using those systems? Yeah. You know, um, when you're talking about the leadless pacemaker, um, they are, there are emerging uh, dual chamber pacing systems but the existing leadless pacemakers on the market are um, single chamber pacing systems. There's one device that uh, uh, has an, an algorithm of using pressure waveforms to try to detect atrial systole, 
so that it could pace synchronously. Um, so, uh, so essentially patients who are in complete heart block, sinus rhythm with complete heart block, uh, that the, the device could sense atrial systole and then pace the ventricle, um, in time with the, with the atrial rhythm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's not a perfect, um, the algorithms that are, that are existing. And so, um, we really are reserving the leadless, uh, systems for patients who have chronic atrial fibrillation or who do not need, um, uh, atrial pacing or AV synchrony. Um, sometimes people who have syncope and really just need, um, ventricular pacing very rarely, um, will use the leadless uh, system. Um, but, but there are drawbacks, you know, um, hopefully with future iterations, you know, if there's better AV synchrony, I think people will, will use it more and more frequently. And then, like I mentioned about the subcutaneous system, there's no pacing system, um, no pacing, uh, capabilities for the, the subcutaneous ICD. And that's important for management of ventricular tachyarrhythmias, um, anti-tachycardia pacing, um, is sort of the preferred means of, um, the preferred device therapy for patients who have ventricular tachycardia, you know, as opposed to a shock, a shock is very uncomfortable. And many patients, if they receive anti-tachycardia pacing, they're not even aware that they've, they've had a, a device therapy. So, um, so not having that element is, um, a disadvantage and, and also the sensing for, of the arrhythmia is, is not quite as good. So, you know, meaning the detection of, of ventricular, t- uh, tachycardia is not quite as good as if you have a, a lead that's, you know, plugged in directly to the right ventricle. So, so that's why those usually aren't our first line, um, therapy, but the, but the, the landscape is changing. That, that was unbelievable. Thank you both. Um, maybe I'll move on to sort of where this case went a little bit and sort of think about empiric therapy. I was wondering, Wendy, how you think about empiric therapy, um, especially in the setting of this patient who was, initially actually coming from rehab, but had been hospitalized for a sort of a prolonged period of time um, and then came back with concern for some sort of cardiac device-related infection? Yeah. Uh, So generally, unless somebody comes in, you know, sort of floridly septic, in which case I'm going to reach for some pretty broad coverage just to stabilize the patient, because I, I know that that's a situation where I can't afford to miss. Um, if someone comes in like this patient and it's mostly kind of drainage and otherwise they're hemodynamically stable and not looking super sick, I would generally be choosing my empiric therapy to cover those bugs that we talked about, the staph aureus and the coag negative staph for the most part. Um, and so something like vancomycin is going to really be the first thing that I reach for in most of these patients if they need, you know, if I really think they need empiric therapy. You know, if you're in a setting where, you know, sometimes this happens where they're totally stable and you're just seeing, you know, some drainage around the generator site and you know it's going to be coming out, I might even hold antibiotics in that setting so that um, when my EP colleagues take out the device, they can do some good tissue cultures. I think that's an important thing to remember is that swabs aren't very useful to us in that setting, but tissue cultures can be very high yield. So if your EP colleagues are going to go in and remove a device, asking them to make sure they take some deep tissue cultures um, can be helpful in terms of figuring out the organism. And then I might start empiric therapy after they've done that. But it would usually be directed at those organisms unless I have some reason to suspect it's another one. Interestingly, this patient was started on cefepime, and I don't remember the exact reasons why. I know we talked about how gram-negative bacteremia in these settings is fairly uncommon. Are there any signs or things that point towards a gram-negative coverage or needing it in these cases? 
Um, I don't think in this case I would necessarily have gone down that road quickly. I mean, that's a so if someone comes in floridly septic with this picture, I would have put it on because even though gram negative infections are rare, you know, when we see them, it can be pseudomonas, it can be serratia. This was a patient who was recently hospitalized, right? And so you're worried about your multi drug resistant gram negatives. And so in that setting, I probably would have put cefepime on board. Um, but if you have an otherwise stable patient and you're going to be working that patient up and you're going to be getting their data, um, I'm not sure I would have necessarily gone that broad that quickly. Thank you. That's really good to know. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to um, piggyback on on what Wendy uh, mentioned as well, which is that um, I think removing the device is sort of a, um, always, you know, as soon as you identify or, or think there is even a possibility of a device infection, I think removing the device is always at the forefront of, um, uh, you know, one of the most important management uh, steps. And that can be trivial if the device is, is relatively recently implanted, um, but it can be quite complicated in devices that are older and, uh, and, and there's, there's risks to, to taking out the device. So I think that's sort of what's at stake when um, you're contemplating removing the device. It, it, can, be, it can be involved. Um, in terms of those situations, when when do we think about um, removing a device in the setting of a bacteremia in this setting? Do you wait for, you know, we want to definitely confirm if there's any vegetation in, in the settings where there isn't any, you know, device uh, lead infection or endocarditis? When do we consider to actually remove these devices? Nick, do you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I can start. Yeah. I think if in, in this case, um, you have, we, we sometimes call it a hot pocket, um, you know, where there's a, uh, uh, device that has evidence of pocket infection, you know, it's got rubor tumor dolor, you know, the classic signs of, of infection. And, and especially in this case where there's drainage of pus, you're like, okay, this, this one has to come out. And especially one that was recently implanted, uh, uh like this one, three months, three months, uh, old implant. Um, that will come out. Uh, that uh, that's not a particularly complicated operation to take out the the device. Um, and what we're really concerned about is the dwell time of the leads um, in the body. Leads that have been in for less than a, a year can almost always come out without a lot of assistance, um, and you can just kind of uh, retract the. Uh, the, there's a little tiny screw, or we call it a helix. That's that's also known as an active fixation mechanism. Um, at the end of the of the leads, uh, where they they plug into the right atrium or the left atrium, um, the coronary sinus leads for CRTs do not have those those elements. And if they're less than a year old, they almost always come out with with minimal effort. Um, not one hundred percent of the time, but 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 close. And um, and so if you see somebody who has a recent uh, implant, then it's then it's sort of a no brainer. Um, in patients who who are getting a generator change, um, by contrast, who have a, a hot pocket. Those are people who, um, in most cases, have had their, their, the leads in for several years. And after a year or so, and no one knows exactly what the time course is, and, and there's a lot of debate about whether you could use imaging to, to determine whether or not the leads are really scarred into the vasculature. But once, they, once that happens, there can be dense adhesions all along the, the lead that can be in the subclavian system, in the uh, superior vena cava. And then within the heart itself, there's, there can be adhesions in the right atrium, in the right ventricle, and it can be sort of socked into the coronary sinus if you have a CRT. So, so at that point, taking out the leads is not trivial, and it involves using what's called a laser eczema sheet that um, sort of slides over the leads, and it delivers laser energy uh, along the, the sort of the sides of, uh, of the lead to free up um, the scar tissue and then allow the lead to be removed. So 
so if you have a hot pocket, if there's an evidence that if there's evidence that the device is infected, you're you're certainly thinking about taking out the the device. But when you're thinking about someone who has bacteremia, um, you want to consider the risks of of lead extraction. And there's a there's a lot of different um, uh, elements, and this is where you really have to know what the device history is of of the individual to decide how high risk it would be to to remove uh, the leads. Um, like I mentioned before, the uh, the lead dwell time, meaning how many years has the the lead that's the oldest lead been in the body? Because um, sometimes there are capped or abandoned leads as well that that um, complicate the picture. Um, if there are uh, more than one lead, if there's two or three or even four, you know, you're talking about abandoned systems um, that complicates the picture. Um, a history of cardiac uh, surgery uh, actually is protective because then there's adhesions in the pericardium that sort of um, make it less likely that with that laser eczema sheet that you could cause a, a vascular tear or a perforation when you're doing the, the operation. So that's actually protective, but you also have to consider if somebody has a valve replacement that if the valve is seated, the, the stakes are, are that much higher for, for removing the device. That, that's so helpful. Thanks, Nick. Um, and then this patient was someone who had a, a mitral valve repair recently. Um, the, the other sort of thing I, I was wondering and from the infectious disease perspective is really how long we treat these patients. So this patient was found to have um, staph hemolyticus and staph epibacteremia. Um, her echo, both transesophageal and transthoracic, thankfully didn't show any valve vegetations or any, you know, any lead vegetations. Um, and so she was continued initially on vancomycin and then transitioned, um, I think, to cefazolin monotherapy. And I was wondering how long we treat these patients for in general after they've um, been extracted. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Noah. Um, no. I, I think before before I go into duration, can I just make a comment about yeah. device removal? Um, I'm just so, it's just so awesome to listen to Nick talk about it from the standpoint <laughs> of the EP doctor. It really is because it, it's always just so enlightening to kind of look at the prism through which all of us think about these things a little bit differently. And so from for me, I would, I think the device needs to come out if I really think it's infected, if we really think it's infected. And yes, it's going to be probably much more of a challenge for my EP colleagues if it's been in for a while or has some of those other characteristics Nick was talking about. But we also know that if you leave an infected device in place, the likelihood that that patient will recur and or die from their infection is quite high. And so it is a setting in which most of the time, if it can get out, if it can be taken out safely, um, and you can extract it, um, we generally recommend it get taken out for infection. Now, actually, you know, confirming that it's infected is another thing entirely. Um, and that can be hard sometimes, right? So, so staph aureus bacteria, we talked about very high risk that the device is involved. That is a situation where if you have occult staph aureus bacteria, even if you had a negative echo, you didn't find it anywhere on the device or the valves, that's a situation in which a lot of us would recommend taking that device out, um, even if you haven't proven it, because the likelihood it's involved is so high. Uh, I would say coag negative staph bacteremia, persistent coag negative staph bacteremia, occult, no other source. That's another situation where it's not quite as high risk, but um, there's a there's a great potential that the device is involved. And so if you haven't found it elsewhere, um, it's reasonable to think about extracting it in that case. Um, one thing I find helpful too, so echo is helpful if you can find vegetations on things like the valves or the leads. Um, that can help you know that you're dealing with a device-related endocarditis. And so if you, echo can be helpful in that setting. 
Um, the Duke criteria can actually be kind of helpful in this setting as well. And I use them. I use the Duke criteria all the time. Um, they're incredibly helpful clinical tool, I think, uh, from, for just helping me think through with every patient, okay, what is really the likelihood I think that this patient has endocarditis? But for even for device-related infections, you know, 10 or 15% of the time you can in, have involvement of the left-sided valves when you have a cardiac device infection. It's not just the tricuspid or the right-sided valves that get involved. And so you can see some of the same things that you would see with regular non-device related endocarditis. And then I also think about looking in the lungs, because if you think about where most, you know, most of this infection is going to be in the right side of the heart. And so where are they going to throw emboli? If they throw emboli, they're going to throw them to the lungs. And so sometimes I'll actually suggest imaging like a CTA of the lungs in a patient to go looking for embolic phenomenon that might sort of increase or decrease my kind of pretest probability that somebody has a device-related infection, even if the echo is negative. So those are all things that you can do. So like, you know, a patient with high-grade Staph aureus bacteremia, that's a cult, is a patient that you're probably going to take the device out of. And that's very different from a patient who might have um, strep veridans bacteremia in the setting of having had a pacer in place for the last eight years. And maybe they even have a vegetation on one of the left-sided valves, but you know, it quenches right away, you're treating it, you don't find it on the pacer, you don't find any evidence of infection by TEE or at the generator site, that's somebody that you might say, you know what, the likelihood is lower that the pacer got involved. So let's treat for endocarditis. And then we'll kind of move forward and, and see how it goes. So it's helpful to have multidisciplinary endocarditis teams, I think, is yeah. one thing uh, that it's important to say if you're lucky. Absolutely. Because I think that's one of the questions is like when for those patients who have these sort of ambiguous cases, when do we push for more advanced imaging? And I suspect that's different at based on individual uh clinicians and and their center but i don't know if maybe nick and wendy if you guys have thoughts on when you do think about you know a pet scan or other modalities outside of echo in these uh tough cases yeah i'll say just um just quickly that um uh you know similar to, to what wendy was saying is sometimes you see a vegetation on the lead um and uh, uh and sometimes you don't and i think uh it can be helpful, you know, if you have somebody who has um, uh, persistent bacteremia, who has a vegetation only, you say, okay, that's probably, you know, the source. And especially if you don't see one on any of the other valves, and maybe you think, oh, maybe really the primary issue here is the, the device. And that just, you know, we need to take care of the device. Um, but on, on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, you might see no evidence of uh, your, or no vegetation on the lead um, but it doesn't necessarily reassure you that the device isn't involved. Um, so, so the presence or absence of vegetations on the lead specifically, um, uh, you know, it, it can be helpful and it's important to look for, um, but it, it may be, um, there are probably varying levels of sp specificity and, and sensitivity depending on the organism. And this is where I need help. And I completely agree that a multidisciplinary uh, uh, endocarditis team is, is really important for these, these complicated cases. But I also think that um, the presence or absence of uh, valve vegetations, whether it be on the left or right side of the heart, um, is, is critical for planning um, your, sort of your surgical approach. Because if you know that somebody is going to go for uh, valve surgery, then you can sort of time your uh, device extraction, especially if it's a high-risk extraction, to concur with uh, whenever the, the cardiac surgery is going to, to happen. And then um, the reimplant strategy is, is relevant in those situations because 
You can also do epicardial pacing systems that are probably of, of lower risk of recurrent infection than transvenous systems. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much. I, I guess from, you know, when we're thinking about like PET scanner or a tagged white blood cell scan, Wendy, when, when do you reach for those further tests? Yeah. So um, not very often is what I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, if, so I, consider the greatest value of those studies really to be in patients with prosthetic valves. If I'm worried about prosthetic valve endocarditis, graft infections, things like that, I, those have very great performance characteristics in those patients. And so I will often use them in that setting. So if you have a complex patient with that issue, um, we know they're not very good for looking for native valve endocarditis. And when it comes to device infections, <laughs> there are a couple of meta-analyses that we go to um, when we're looking to kind of cite the performance characteristics of pet scans in patients with device infections. And we know that the performance characteristics are fairly good for diagnosing pocket infection in those patients, but they're not very good for looking for lead or like native valve infection involvement that you might see in a case of um, CIED related endocarditis. So I do not end up reaching for PET scan very often in these patients. Can I say one other thing? I just I wanted to um, kind of expand a little when Nick was talking about whether you can always be reassured by not finding vegetations or finding vegetations on the lead. Um, I think that's a really important point that he was making there because, and we're going to talk about treatment, I'm sure, um, but. Uh, finding or not finding something on the lead is not the answer. Uh, it's not the necessary answer that we need in most cases. I mean, most of the time we're pushing for TEEs because we really want to see the valves because uh, having mm-hmm. valve involvement of the infection will change um, the antibiotic duration of therapy at the very least. And so that's often why we're pushing on the TEEs. Um, in terms of the wire, there was actually a paper... Um, that came out of Tufts a few years back that just took a bunch of people who um, came into the hospital for totally different reasons, non-infection suspicion reasons that had devices in in place and they did TEEs on them. And they found that about 10% of the time people had, you know, clots and ghosts and things on the wire anyway um, that they thought were, you know, false positive findings. And I know our colleagues tell me all the time that they will see stuff like that. Yes. We get we get called about those not infrequently for people who are undergoing TE for say precardioversion um, mm-hmm. to exclude the left left atrial appendage thrombus that oh look there's there is a vegetation or, or um, fibrinous strand on the lead and that it's very common and it's probably um, scar tissue and um, in addition to the the imaging study I, I remember that one that you're mentioning uh, Wendy there's also one that's an autopsy study and they see fibrinous strands um, uh, at autopsy commonly as well that that aren't um, that that don't seem to be infectious. That's, that's just an unbelievable amount of information. Thank you both. Um, uh, you know, in speaking of sort of, you mentioned sort of management and sort of duration of management, as well as sort of thinking about reimplantation of these devices since they're needed as well. I'd love to start with just understanding how long we treat when the valve or the lead is involved um, versus just a, a simple bacteremia where we don't think the device is involved. Yeah. So I would say, so there are, are like four different major guidelines um, on how to manage <laughs> device-related infections from the AHA guidelines back in 2010. And then the most recent one is like the Heart Rhythm Association. Mm-hmm. Hold on. It's HRSA, Heart Rhythm Society. So 
Hold on. I got to. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Yeah, it's HRS, I think. It's, so there was a Heart Rhythm Society and then there's the EHRA, European Heart Rhythm Association. That's um, right. That's right. There's the European Heart Rhythm Association guidelines. Yeah. And those were the most recent ones that were published in 2020. Um, and, you know, there is a there's a spectrum of recommendations that you get from all of those different experts, really. I think what, what they can agree on is that if you think the infection was kind of limited to the pocket and the device has been removed, you can probably treat for just about a week or so, seven to 10 days of therapy and be done with it. Um, and then they all agree that if you've actually done the workup and you found that there is device-related endocarditis, so there's actual involvement of the valves, then you should treat for endocarditis. So there you're usually dealing with about six weeks, four to six weeks or so of therapy based on the organism that you're dealing with. You're kind of going back to the endocarditis guidelines. Where they don't agree at all is the significance of just finding a lead vegetation. And some of the guidelines will say that that's a patient that should be treated for the full six weeks or so for endocarditis. Other guidelines will say, you know, that's coming out. Um, and so if it's coming out, you're not necessarily leaving vegetation behind. And so probably you can treat those patients a little bit shorter um, on the order of maybe two weeks or so. Although even those guidelines say, but if it's staph aureus, probably treat it longer for four weeks or so. So, it, so the experts are all over the place. Um, but I would say most of the time, six weeks for those who have endocarditis, treat for endocarditis if you find endocarditis treat for a short period of time if it's just a local infection, you know, skin and soft tissue. And then if it's just on the lead, think it through. If it's staph aureus, you're scared, maybe you treat a little bit longer. If it's not and it's come out and the patient's doing really well clinically with no evidence of ongoing infection, potentially you could treat that one a little bit shorter on the order maybe of two weeks or so. This also seems why it's so important to have a multidisciplinary team to figure out those complex cases. <laughs> um, when we when we think about like reimplanting, when when do we think it's safe to reimplant these devices? Um, and from both the, the the cardiology perspective and the ID perspective, I feel like that was is particularly for this case. It was a, a huge discussion because we weren't sure. Yeah, I think um, it it sort of depends on what's at stake for patients who are uh, pacemaker dependent. Um, that's sort of a more sensitive population because they need something permanent, and, and you have to um, sort of jerry rig some sort of temporary pacing system often. Um, that uh, is, is usually the way that we do it is with an externalized um, uh, uh, lead that has an active fixation mechanism similar to the way that the permanent um, ones are delivered, but that's still going through the skin at some level. In other cases where patients are not pacemaker dependent, then we have to sort of uh, uh, like defibrillator patients like this patient who had a cardiac arrest or a VF arrest in the setting of ischemia um, that's sort of a gray area where it's not exactly a primary prevention defibrillator and it's not exactly a secondary prevention defibrillator, but, um, and the distinction there being primary prevention means someone has never had a ventricular arrhythmia before a secondary prevention is someone with a history of ventricular arrhythmia in the setting of ischemia. Um, if you have a VF, uh, event, that's sort of a, uh, an in-between because if you revascularize them, then maybe they won't have another event. Any, anywho, um, for defibrillators, uh, who do not require pacing, sometimes you can uh, go an interval of even, you know, uh, several weeks or even months before you want to re-implant. You go as long as you can um, reasonably go, um, or maybe you switch to, to the subcutaneous device. The other patient population that I think bears some consideration from an EP perspective is um, patients who have a CRT device who are super responders, um, meaning that they have left bundle branch block or, or some pacing-induced cardiomyopathy, and they recover their EF with um, a CRT device, and now you've taken everything out, and now you're leaving them with just, say, 
um, one lead or, or no lead, um, they need all that hardware back in. And are you really going to go through the, um, the process of reimplanting all three uh, uh, wires in somebody who's had factory in the past? And the timing, uh, so that's sort of some of the considerations from, from the EP perspective, but the timing, we're, we're always looking, and you're exactly right about the multidisciplinary approach. We're always asking for our ID colleagues' um, guidance on exactly when is the right time and, and, you know, and telling them, here's what we think would be the, the strategy that we would employ for a temporary pacing solution. But, um, but yeah, I think the timing is always a, a question for, that we're asking our ID colleagues. Yeah, this is another one of those areas where there's also a lot of kind of splay in the recommendations um, between the different guidelines. Um, I think, I guess, one way to sum it up is I think I think the guidelines used to err on the side of trying to recommend um, keeping the device, completing entire courses of therapy before putting the device back in, if you could. Um, so if someone had endocarditis, you were like trying to treat them for four to six weeks and hoping that you could have a temporary wire or at least have it in for, you know, at least get them on antibiotics for a couple of weeks before you put it back in. But that was kind of arbitrary and based on nothing other than our own concern that putting hardware back in a patient who was recently infected seemed like a bad thing. But it's not like there was great data and there's still not great data. And I would say what's changed in the meantime, and I love that Nick used the word, um, what did he say? Jerry... Jerry Rick. That's a perfect um, description. And then that that actually changed. I didn't realize what so for a while we used to use transvenous wires, right? And we knew that those were high risk and they could move and they were kind of scary. And but now this jerry rigging that we do <laughs> is kind of crazy. And once you see what that is you start to realize that, wait a minute, this is a higher risk. What we're doing right now is potentially higher risk for introducing another infection than putting in a new device under, you know, sort of sterile technique. And, right. and so, so, you know, I think now we sort of, the pendulum has swung more toward um, not just making arbitrary decisions about, oh, it should be seven days, it should be 14 days, it should be 28 days, and really thinking through, okay, you know, how likely is it that this patient is still actively infected? So, you know, are they afebrile now? All the clinical signs of infection are done. Have the blood cultures, if they were positive, cleared? And so it's nice to have some surveillance blood cultures showing that they've cleared, preferably after the device is extracted, so you can see. Um, and most of the time now, I think the, the most recent guidelines, those EHRA guidelines say, and I think this is the best recommendation in my opinion, they basically say once a device is out, 72 hours, at least 72 hours of negative blood cultures after that. And if they're negative and the patient is looking clinically well, um, probably if the device needs to go back in, it can go back in. And that doesn't vary based on whether there's endocarditis versus not. There are some other studies out there that are sort of poking holes in that. There was a small observational study from Mayo that came out a couple of years ago that suggested that outcomes at a year were better in patients with device-related endocarditis if they waited 14, more than 14 days versus less than 14 days to get the device put back in. But I, they had longer hospitalizations. There was a lot of likelihood of bias in that study. And so, so I go with the recommendations of the EHRA in terms of just looking at the patient, making sure that clinically you think they've cleared the infection and that the blood cultures have stayed negative for at least 72 hours after extraction. Mm. One, uh, one thing that I've, one practice that I've heard of or, or that I've, I've seen a couple uh, case series on is for patients who are pacemaker dependent to get uh, the leads extracted and then have a leadless pacemaker implanted 
um, concomitantly, meaning during the exact same procedure. And that's a, a practice that I think is is controversial and that I would be concerned, especially depending on the organism, that uh, that would set somebody up for persistent infection. But there are people who are doing that um, uh, in the United States that, uh, we, that we've seen those case reports. Um, and it could be that, uh, that that is a good strategy, but I, you know, we'll, we need to see more evidence. And, and I would, I'm certainly concerned that if you, that you implant, um, even the weedless pacemaker is, uh, could be, uh, become colonized in the setting of, of bacteremia. What, what do you think about this idea? When I've, I've only seen, there's been two case series from a couple different groups. Um, but it just doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting, Nick. I had, I had not heard about those. And so did they put them in as like a temporizing measure? And then ultimately on the other side, they implanted a new device or do they try to get away with just the leadless pacer? I think, I think for some of them, they, they're sort of a temporizing device. And then down the line, they'll, they'll put in the device that they think they need, whether it be an ICD or, you know, a CRT device. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some people, it was sort of the destination therapy that, you know, is somebody who is pacemaker dependent and who was at very high risk for reinfection. And they were under appropriate antibiotic therapy. So they mm-hmm. said, okay, we were, you know, in the same procedure. And usually those, the lead extractions involve groin access. We already have groin access. Let's just put it in and then um, be done. And I think, um, one of the points is that, that, that you also made is that the hospital stay for these patients who require these temporary external pacing systems can be very long. Um, and the idea is that maybe you save a, a little bit of uh, time in the hospital and maybe that makes some difference one way or another. But um, yeah, it just doesn't sound just doesn't, <laughs> we'll see if maybe there's more data down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to think about it, Nick. Do the, do the, the leadless pacers, so that just goes in a subcutaneous pocket, right? And there's not any kind of wire that's going down toward the heart. Well, it, right? it's, it's actually, it's contained entirely in the right ventricle. So it's, oh. it's, it's all in the blood pool. So, so, um, and also, oh. you know, you think about the, and I don't know, it's something about sort of the fluid dynamics and the flow dynamics of the right ventricle. Um, is probably somewhat different than being in the vein. So I think there there's reason to think that there's a lower risk of infection, but the we need we need more data to oh my god uh, to yes. support this notion. I'm horrified. I'm totally horrified. <laughs> I didn't realize, that. <laughs> I realized that's what it was. I'm sorry. Yeah, that is, that is horrifying to me. And yeah, I would not want to put that in the setting of someone who had recently been bacteria. Right. Right. Yeah. So so this patient she um, was treated for her bacteremia with reimplantation done after her uh, blood cultures were negative. The reimplantation thankfully was successful. Um, she was thankfully then discharged to rehab. I don't think she's been back in the hospital since, um, at least for a cardiac device infection. And so really just wanted to, to thank you both so much for taking your time and what sort of, what other pearls you have, what takeaways you'd have for the ID fellow, the resident, the cardiology resident or the, or the fellow taking care of this patient. Um, I think, I think from my perspective, uh, it's hard to overestimate. And I know we've said this a couple of times, so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's hard (laughs) to overestimate the importance of really talking and partnering with your cardiac and your EP colleagues in these situations, because, you know, there's a lot of guidance out there. There's a lot of guidelines. There's a lot of expert opinions. Um, and they are very helpful for managing a lot of patients, but, you know, a perfect example of just what we just heard. So I didn't realize, I deal with cardiac device infections all the time, and I was not aware of exactly what a leadless pacer entailed, you know? And so it's impossible for me 
to wrap my mind around all of these different cardiac devices and you know the implications thereof and what are the risks truly of extracting each of these devices based on the patient sitting in front of you and how long it's been in and so you know i think the guidelines can only get you so far and so having really good relationships and communication with your cardiac and ep colleagues is really important in these cases to make sure that you get the best outcomes for the patient and everybody is thinking about them together and thinking hard and so if people are at places that have those kinds of teams use them um, and if you're at a place, you're at an academic place that doesn't have them um, work to try to get something together um, because they've been shown to be really helpful in improving outcomes in endocarditis um, cases. And so uh, so that I think would be my main take home point. Um, yeah, I think this was, this was great. I, I, here's what I, I guess I'll say. If you see somebody who has a pocket with um, with pus coming out of it, that device has to come out. <laughs> and it's, especially if it's something that just recently went in, the stakes are low. Uh, you want to take it out. Um, uh, they usually come out without a lot of effort. You know, if it's an older device, then you have to really think about what's at stake. Um, and your reimplant strategy always has to to balance, um, uh, you know, the seriousness of the infection. And uh, the priority with which you need to reimplant the particular device that that went in. There are some cases where the device is is very important uh, for the patient, and there are other cases where the device is uh, maybe you can compromise a little bit and do something that's a little bit simpler um, for the patient in the future. So, thanks again to Noah, Nick, and Wendy for this wonderful discussion of cardiac device infections. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, where we house our consult notes, which are written compliments to the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.